got your Bible this morning, the book of Luke, Luke chapter number 4, Luke chapter number 4. I want to thank you all again for this meeting and allowing us the privilege of being coming, coming out to it. It's just been a, just, a, a, just a refreshing for us, and I've enjoyed the fellowship. you have been very gracious to us, and I just want to thank you again for all that you've done for us. Luke chapter number 4, we'll begin reading in verse number 16. If you got your Bible, let's stand if you would. Luke chapter number 4 and verse number 16. The Bible says that he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up, and as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up for to read. There was delivered unto him the book of the prophet Isaiah, and when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted to preach deliverance to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. And he closed the book and he gave it again to the minister and he sat down and the eyes of all them that were in the synagogue were fastened on him. And he began to say unto them, This day is this scripture fulfilled in your ears. And all bare him witness and wondered at the gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth. And they said, Is not this Joseph's son? And he said unto them, Ye will surely say unto me this proverb, Physician, heal thyself. Whatsoever we have heard done in Capernaum, do also here in thy country. And he said, Verily I say unto you, No prophet is accepted in his own country. But I tell you of a truth, many widows were in Israel in the days of Elias when the heaven was shut up three years and six months, when great famine was throughout all the land. But unto none of them was Elias sent, save unto Sarepta, a city of Sidon, unto a woman that was a widow. And many lepers were in Israel in the time of Elias the prophet. None of them was cleansed, saving Naaman the Syrian. And all they in the synagogue, when they heard these things, were filled with wrath, and rose up and thrust him out of the city, and led him into the brow of the hill, whereon their city was built, and that that they might cast him down headlong. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We're so grateful, again, for the privilege we have to be able to be here this week. I want to thank you for every message that we have heard. You uh, You have convicted us. You've drawn us closer to you. You've done so much in our hearts this week, and we thank you for that. And I pray that, Lord, this morning that you'll take this message that you've laid upon our heart And I pray that you would speak to your people. I pray that you'd work in our midst now and we'll give you the glory and the praise for everything. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. You can be seated. Here in the book of Luke in chapter number 4, the Bible tells us there in verse number 16, and he came to Nazareth. Of course, we know reading here in the text, this is the city that Jesus grew up in. Now understand Nazareth was just a small little country town up in the Galilee, in the Canaret, what they call it. And just a small town, they estimate the population in Jesus' day to be about 400 people. The way they base these estimations is based on when they start uncovering the sites, when they start finding the tombs. It kind of gives them an, an area of how big the city would have been built because they don't bury inside the cities. And so they kind of got an estimate of about 400 people. Now today, Nazareth is about 80,000 people. It's a, it's a bustling Arab city. You don't find Jews living in Nazareth today. It's the next city over. Nazareth elite is where you'll find the Jewish communities at. 
But, but in Nazareth, I mean, it's, it's, it's just it's, it's people everywhere. Driving through there is absolute chaos driving through Nazareth. Now understand that Nazareth was established, they believe, about 150 B.C. during the intertestament period. What many scholars believe is that some of the inhabitants from Bethlehem would have moved. Bethlehem's only about four to five miles right outside of Jerusalem. Because of the persecution taking place, they believe that some of the inhabitants would have moved from there all the way up into the Galilee, into Nazareth, and established the city of Nazareth. Now, it's located on a very important trade route, trade route that they call today, the, it was called the Via Maris. And uh, matter of fact, if you remember reading in the book of Exodus, when they left Egypt, God told them in Exodus not to go the way of the Philistine. The way of the Philistine would have took them up the coastal route and it would have led them up all the way to Mount Carmel in that area and cut you across the valley of, of Megiddo or the, Jezre, uh, the, the valley of Megiddo and it would have taken you all the way down towards Jordan and then take you up by the Sea of Galilee all the way up to Damascus, Syria. And so right along that trade route is where Nazareth is established. It's right there on the edge of the valley of Megiddo. Or we read about in the book of Revelation about where they gather together and uh, the place that is called in the Hebrew tongue Armageddon. It's right there at the edge of that valley is where that's located. Now, again, it was established about 150 B.C. I'll tell you one of the things I love about the north is the olive trees that we have. I love eating olives, and the olives, uh, I mentioned it the other day, and how fresh the olives are, and we have olive trees all over that area. But you know what's fascinating about an olive tree? You know, you cannot accurately date an olive tree. It's not like some trees that you can cut them open and count the lines to see how old they are. What happens with an olive tree is they begin to grow, they begin to hollow out on the inside. And so what takes place is as the olive tree grows, and understand an olive tree can grow for thousands of years. They can be very, very old. And what happens is you have these little shoots that grow out the side of the olive trees. They're called in Hebrew a netzer. And these little netzer or netzerim uh, in plural would be growing out all over the, the, the base of these olive trees. And as the tree dies, these little netzers begin to take over and they become the tree. And that's how the tree can continue to grow. You know, the first mention that we read about Nazareth in the Bible is over in the book of Matthew and, and Matthew chapter 2. And it talks about as, as Joseph had fled to Egypt with the Lord Jesus as, as, a, as a young child. Now he's coming back into the land of Israel. And he comes back and the Bible says there, and he came and he dwelt in a city called Nazareth. I like the next phrase. That it might be fulfilled that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophets, he shall be called a Nazarene. Now preacher, people love to take this verse of a scripture and attack it. And what they'll say is, there is no prophecy in the Old Testament about Nazareth. Nazareth wasn't even a city yet. There was no such city called Nazareth. It was established after the Old Testament, between the Old Testament and the New Testament, during the intertestament period. But you know what's fascinating? And they'll say, there's no prophet spoke about it. But you know, in the book of Isaiah in chapter 11, 
In verse number one, the Bible says this, and there shall come forth a rod out of the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow from his roots. Now here coming from the stem of Jesse, a, a, a branch would grow out of his roots. Now that word branch that's used in Isaiah 11 is the word netzer. It's the same word of those little shoots growing out of the olive tree. And you know what the city of Nazareth is called? In Hebrew, Netzer, Net, uh, 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 Netzeret in Hebrew is the name for the city of Nazareth. Listen, it wasn't a city in the Old Testament, but God knew one day it would. And 500 years before he ever wrote it, uh, before it ever became a city, God said, my son is going to come, is going to live in that city and he shall be called a Nazarene. Just like the word of God was spoken. And here they are in Nazareth and the Bible says that he came into the synagogue as his custom was. Now, the word synagogue is the Hebrew word Beit Knesset. And it literally means a house of gathering. So here they are. They enter into the synagogue. Now, first century synagogues, all the, the few that's still in the land today that you can see, they all are about the same size. They're about 30 foot wide, about 45 foot long. I've stepped them off. So they're, they're, that's about the dimensions of them. Now, when you go inside those synagogues, they didn't have nice, comfortable pews like you're sitting on today. They took those stones that I talked about how they cut and made their buildings with. And they took those stones and they would, they would build the walls and they would build uh, steps along the sides. That's where the people would sit. You're going to take a, a lime and a, a straw and some mud and you're going to make a plaster. You're going to plaster the floors, the seats, the, the walls. And, 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 and so here they are. They're entering in and they're sitting down. And as they sit down, the Bible says there in verse in verse number uh, six, uh, 17, And there was delivered unto him the book of the prophet Isaiah. And when he had opened the book, watch this, he found the place where it was written. Here he does, he takes that scroll and he begins to begin to scroll over all the way over to the book of Isaiah. And there in the book of Isaiah, uh, you'll find him going to Isaiah, what would be chapter number 61. And the Bible says there that he began to read, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted. He says to uh, preach deliverance to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind to set at liberty them that are bruised to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. Now if you were reading in Isaiah 61 you'll find in verse number 2 he stops right in the middle of verse number 2. He ends with to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and he stops right there. He closed the book and he gave it back to the minister and he sat down. And, and here you'll find as we begin to go through, and I want to look at some of the, uh, this, this, what Jesus is doing here and, and based out of, really out of Isaiah. I want to look at some of the, uh, the terminology used here in Isaiah 61. Now understand, when I begin to quote some from Isaiah 61, you're going to hear some of these words are going to be different than what you read in Luke. Understand that Isaiah was written in Hebrew, translated into English. Luke was written, it was, he was preaching in Hebrew and it was translated into Greek and then translated into English. So some of the words are going to be different, but can I say this? The meanings are identical. 
And so I'm going to look at some of the Hebrew instead of the Greek. You say, why? Because I don't know Greek and I know Hebrew. So that's why I'm going to do that. So I want you to notice the message in which Jesus is proclaiming there in, in Nazareth that day. Notice, first of all, he says this in, in verse number 18. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He, he, he says there to, to preach the gospel to the poor. Well, in, in, in Isaiah, he says it this way, to preach good tidings unto the meek. Now, it's interesting that word meek preacher is the Hebrew word anavim. And it pictures somebody that's in submission, somebody in, uh, in submission to an authority over them, a humbleness that one would have. Well, they, as the Rain family were singing yesterday and he got to testify and he talked about that lady that came to church. And I thought, what a good example. Here's this lady sitting there and, and she raised her hand and she says, I'm really lost. Man, what a good example of somebody with a meek spirit. We had a guy in, in Boston one time at one of our meetings. He, I was witnessing to these two guys sitting there and, and I've been talking to the one the whole time and the other one never said a word. He just sat over there. They wasn't with each other. He's dressed in a suit, nice uh, dressed young man, probably 30 years old. And, and I finally turned to him and I said, listen, I said, I don't know what your name is. I said, but I'm just going to call you Nick. And he goes, yep, that's it. And I said, what? No, I said, I don't know what your name. I said, I'm going to call you Nick. I'm just going to use you in illustration. He goes, no, that's my name. And I thought, good Lord, I ain't never used Nick as an illustration a day in my life. That name just popped in my head. And I, when he said that, I said, Nick, I believe God's speaking to you. And he just got real bright-eyed. I said, Nick, I said, if you were to die and stand before God, why should he let you into heaven? He said, he shouldn't. I said, why not? He goes, I'm not worthy. I said, Nick, I said, you on the right road, my friend. I said, boy, make a long story short, oh, Nick ended up getting saved, and, and I was getting ready to go preach. I said, come on, don't you just go tell everybody what happened to you. And we're walking up there, and they said, uh, I remember Sister Salerni said, we need to find him a Bible. And she said, all we got is these Hebrew Russian New Testaments, Hope of Israel Bibles. All we got is the Hebrew Russian New Testament. He goes, oh, that's okay. He goes, I'm from Moscow. And I'm like, what? He goes, yeah, my name is Nikolai. He goes, I'm waiting to go to the airport. I'm about to fly back tonight. I'm telling you, listen, but it's the meekness that he had, that spirit. And, that, and that's what he's speaking about here. Remember on the Emmaus Road as those two were walking down the Emmaus Road and Jesus drew near unto them. And as he's walking and they were sad, and he says, why are you so sad? And, and they basically said to him, well, where have you been the last couple of days? You know, we had trusted that this was he who would have re redeemed Israel. You see, what they were expecting was a Messiah to rise up on the scene to set them free from the bondage of the Gentiles. They were under that Gentile domain and they were waiting on the coming of that Messiah to set them free. They were then going to be the head of the nations. He was going to sit on the throne of David and rule and reign. And that's what they were anticipating. That's what they were expecting to take place. But you see, what they did not realize is the emptiness that they had within you see, they were empty. They, they thought they had a relationship with God. They thought they, but listen, within they had no relationship. We was talking to this, a Jewish guy yesterday, gave him a track and was talking to him and going through some scriptures with him. And, and, and you could, he, he told us, he goes, you know, he goes, he had a reverence to God. He just, he has no idea. He just, he, he's just kind of in darkness in that sense. But yet he, there's, there's something within him that wants to know God. It was an emptiness I saw within this man's heart yesterday. I'm telling you, listen, that's how they were. But you see, his message that he was going to bring is a message that would provide hope. 
It was going to provide hope to them. Here they are sitting under this bondage. Here they are sitting in this situation. But the message that Christ was going to bring was going to be a message of deliverance that will set them free from the bondage in which they're in. You see, his message provided hope. It provided healing. You'll notice in verse number 18, he said, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted. To heal the brokenhearted. Now, over in Isaiah, he says it this way, to bind up the brokenhearted. Now, that word bind is the Hebrew word lachavosh. Uh, to bind, it literally means to set something in order. It's to take something that's broke and to fix it. It's to like put a bandage on something, to make something heal. I, I, collect, I collect braces. That's one of my collections in life is, is braces. And my kids will ask me every year, what new brace you want this year? I've got neck braces. I've got knee braces. I've got back braces. I've got shoulder braces. You name it, I got it. I guarantee you, I need my knee braces now. I'm telling you, I've got, I broke my ribs a couple of different times. I broke my nose four times. My wrist, my hands, I broke, I broke so many things. You say, you just accident prone? No, I'm not. I just do stupid things. That's what my wife said. You just do stupid things. And, 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 and I always joke at my oldest son. I said, well, what makes you think of doing something like that? And I think it's hereditary is, what, uh, is what's kind of coming to mind. But I'm always putting these braces on. Well, that's the picture here. It's to bind up something that's broken. And you'll find over and over throughout the gospel, that's exactly what Jesus did. I mean, look at the leper in Luke chapter number 5. I mean, here society couldn't help him. Here, the, nobody could help him. He was an outcast in Israel. But Jesus came along and what's he do? He heals the leper. I'm telling you, listen, Jesus can take those things that are broken in people's lives and fix it. Aren't you glad the gospel of Jesus Christ? It's good news. It provides hope for those that are hurting. I'm telling you, it can heal a home. It can heal a life that's been shattered by sin. And I'm telling you over and over, that's what we see Christ doing is healing the broken in heart. His message provided hope. His message provided healing. His message provided help. You'll find, he says in verse number 18, to preach deliverance to the captives. Now in Isaiah, he says it this way, to proclaim liberty to the captives. That word proclaim is the word likro in Hebrew. And it literally is used almost 700 times throughout the Old Testament. It's got many different variations depending on the context. There's times it means to call out. It could be used like we would to to preach, to, to lift up our voices. It could be used to simply invite someone. And so it's got many different depending on its context. But I want you to think about it as we, as we think in the scriptures. I mean, remember that woman in, in, in the book of Mark in chapter 5 that had that issue of blood for 12 years. I mean, the Bible says in verse 27 that she spent all she had on physicians and grew worse. But a couple of verses later it says this, but she heard of Jesus. You see, she heard something. But I want to tell you, listen, she came to the Lord Jesus Christ and touched the hem of his garment and was made whole of that very uh, issue of blood that she had. It dried up. I'm telling you, listen, his message provided help for those that were hurting. Over and over we see that example through the word of God. But I want you to notice his mission as well in verse number 18. He says this, recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised. And, the, and, and Isaiah says it this way, the opening of the prison to them that are bound. Now that word bound is the Hebrew word la'asorim. 
And, and asur in Hebrew literally means forbidden. I, I showed you that track the other day that I wrote in Israel. It's called asur, forbidden. And it was, the title was what the rabbis don't want you to know. Now, asurim could be uh, to yoke up like an oxen. It could be to, to lock somebody up and put somebody in prison. That's, the, that's kind of the picture that uh, asurim kind of pictures. Now, we're in Luke. I want you to look over real quickly to Luke chapter 13. Look in Luke chapter number 13. Luke chapter number 13, verse number 10. The Bible says in verse number 10, And he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. And behold, there was a woman which had a spirit of infirmity 18 years. Watch this. And was bowed together and could in no wise lift up herself. And when Jesus saw her, he called her to him and he said unto her, Woman, thou art loosed from that infirmity. And he laid his hands on her and immediately she was made straight and glorified God. And the ruler of the synagogue answered with indignation because that Jesus had healed on the Sabbath on the Sabbath day and said unto the people, there are six days in which men ought to work. In them therefore come and be healed and not on the Sabbath day. The Lord then answered him and he said, thou hypocrite, doth not each one of you on the Sabbath loose his ox or his ass from the stall and lead him away to watering. I mean, here it was the Sabbath day that Jesus healed this woman. The Bible says that he laid his hands on her. Why did they see so much offense in the midst of this? Because on the Sabbath day in their rabbinic writings, what would later be called the, uh, in the Mishnah, uh, they, they taught that on the Sabbath day you cannot untie things on the Sabbath day unless you do it with one hand. You see, you can untie something on the Sabbath as long as you just do it with one hand because it's not like work. That's why Jesus said uh, that you're talking about loosing your ox or your ass on the Sabbath. They would untie it with one hand. But if you had to use two hands, that's work. You can't do that. You'd be amazed at some of the ridiculous laws that they have. I've watched them. I've watched them, uh, Brother Freak, down there in Atlanta, Georgia, putting or in Baltimore as well, putting garbage bags on their head, running to the synagogue on Shabbat, on the Sabbath day, because they will not open an umbrella on the Sabbath. Why? Because it's building a structure. It's building it's work. You're building. You can't do that on the Sabbath day. And so you can stick a Walmart bag on top of your head and run. I'm telling you, listen, it's crazy some of the things. But notice what verse 16 says. And ought not this woman, being a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan hath bound, lo, these 18 years be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day. Here's a woman Jesus said was locked up. She'd been bound for some 18 years. But you know what Jesus did? He put both hands. And the Bible says that he laid his hands on her. That's why they had so much offense. I want to tell you, listen, the, uh, the, the ministry that Christ did was setting people free from the bondage in which they were in. Now, let me show you real quickly. Because his message provided hope. It provided healing. It provided help. But I want you to notice back in our text the perplexity that we see here in Nazareth. Look, if you would, in verse number 20. Now, here Jesus, uh, the Bible says he begins to read from Isaiah 61. And in verse number 20, he closed the book. He gave it again to the minister and he sat down. And the eyes of all them that were in the synagogue were fastened on him. Now I want you to notice this perplexity because it's seen, first of all, in, in, in their words. The Bible says in verse number 21, and he began to say unto them, this day is this scripture fulfilled in your ears. Wow. Could you imagine sitting in that synagogue? As they're sitting there that day, Jesus read from those verses. He says, today are these verses fulfilled in your ears. Now understand, everybody in there knew exactly who Jesus was. 
I mean, they were raised in the same town that Jesus was raised in. I thought Jesus was probably the example for every kid growing up in Nazareth. Think about it. How come you can't be like Jesus? Mary has no problem with Jesus. Why why is it always my kids acting up? Why why can't you be? He had to be the example throughout all of Nazareth. I had to be. I'm telling you, but here he is standing there reading and he sets down. He says, today is this scripture fulfilled in your ears. Now notice this in verse number number 22. And all bear him witness and wondered at the, watch this, gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth. You see some of them sitting there going, wow, wow, what wonderful words. I mean, they were amazed. Others said, and they said, is not this Joseph's son? They're going, wait a minute, ain't this Joseph's son? And others are going, wow, this is incredible. This is amazing, these gracious words. They were so excited in what they were hearing. We see it in their, in, in their words, but I want you to notice it in their, in their wrath. Now, look if you would down uh, in verse, verse number 28. Verse number 28, And all they in the synagogue, when they heard these things, were filled with wrath. What happened to all them gracious words? And rose up and thrust him out of the city and led him into the brow of the hill whereon their city was built, that they might cast him down headlong. Now, what changed in between, oh, what gracious words to, let's kill him. Let me show you. Let me show you. Because it's seen not only in the words and in the wrath, but it's seen in the warning that he gives them. Notice in verse number 23, And he said unto them, Ye will surely say unto me, This proverb, Physician, heal thyself. Whatsoever we have heard done in Capernaum, do also here in thy country. And he said, Verily I say unto you, No prophet is accepted in his own country, but I tell you the truth, many widows were in Israel in the days of Elias. When the heaven was shut up three years and six months, when great famine was throughout all the land, but unto none of them was Elias sent, save unto Sarah, to a city of Sidon, unto a woman that was a widow. Now they knew that story very well about the prophet Elijah and how there was a famine for uh, three years and six months. I mean, they could stand there. You can stand there at Nazareth and look over and see Mount Carmel. It's just down the road. It's in, it's in view. I mean, you can see where it would have taken place. And I'm telling you this, and they knew that story. They were familiar with that story. How Elijah stood on top of Carmel and began to pray and the fire of God came down. What one of their heroes had to be was Elijah. He read that story to them. Look at the next example he gives in verse 27. And many lepers were in Israel in the time of Elias the prophet. And none of them was clean, saving Naaman the Syrian. Of course, they're familiar with that portion of Scripture. Now, this would have taken place just about an hour and a half drive today down the road, uh, heading down Highway 90 all the way down uh, towards the Dead Sea, right there at the beginning of the Dead Sea where the Jordan dumps in. This is where that would have taken place. And remember that little widow or that little uh, slave girl that was up in Syria and, and her master had leprosy and she says, well, there's a prophet in Israel that can cleanse leprosy. Man, he loaded it up. He said, we're going to Israel. Man, they get down there and they said, you know, Elijah don't even, Elisha don't even come out and, 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 and see him. He just sends his servant out and he tells him, he says, dip in that Jordan seven times. And he's looking at that nasty, dirty water down there and that is filthy. I mean, that Jordan River before it dumps into the, into the Dead Sea is just like a mud hole. It looks like, it looks like the Chattahoochee River, narrower. I mean, it is nasty looking. I see people going down there getting baptized. I'm thinking, you have lost your mind getting in that water. If you go up north... Where it starts, well, we got waterfalls. 
They go whitewater rafting on the Jordan River. It's beautiful, gorgeous water. You go trout fishing out there, Dan River trout. I mean, it's gorgeous. Those waters coming out of Lebanon and Syria that form the Jordan River are gorgeous. And he's going, we got better water at home. Well, I could see why he would say that. But they said, oh, if he'd have come out and did this and that, wouldn't make a long story short, he does. He dips seven times in it, comes up cleansed of that leprosy. Man, they knew that story. They knew that story well. Now, what's, what's the big deal about these two different examples that makes them so angry? Well, if you'll notice in the verse one, he says in verse 26, but unto none of them was Elias sent, save unto Sarepta, a city of Sidon. That's up in modern day Lebanon. Unto a woman that was a widow. You see, there were many Jewish widows in Israel. But he didn't go to none of them. He went to a Gentile widow woman up in Lebanon today. Well, the next example he gives in verse 27, there were many lepers in Israel in the time of Elias the prophet. None of them was cleansed, saving Naaman the Syrian. Why, we got enough lepers here in Israel, but you know what Elisha don't do? He don't heal none of those, but yet he takes this Gentile and he heals him. You see, here they were expecting the Messiah to come to set them free from the bondage of the Gentiles. You know what Jesus just declared? That his ministry was not just for the house of Israel, but it was for these Gentiles as well. What? You mean God wants to save Gentiles? I mean, these are our enemies. God wants to save them? You mean God wants to save Muslims? Are you serious? Who in the world would want to go out and reach a Muslim? With the gospel. I mean, they're our enemies. Look what happened on 9-11. Look what happened. Look at their history. I want to tell you, listen, I've been sitting up there eating at that. Uh, that my wife and I have been going up to that uh, Iraqi restaurant up in Chattanooga. We're going up there again today. Anybody wants to go, feel free. I'm telling you, listen, there's authentic food. It's good. And you know, I've been witnessing to that guy. Gave him Arab tracks, track from the church. I tell you what, I'm telling you, sister, if you'll go by there like you go to McDonald's and y'all leave tracks there, he'll come. Could you imagine what could take place if you get an, a man from Iraq that gets saved who could reach all these Muslims around this area? There's no telling what God would do. I want to tell you, listen, the gospel is good for everybody, whether they're Jew or, or Gentile. I'm telling you, listen, but in their mind, they're like, we don't want them to get saved. Why would you take the gospel to them? I'm telling you, listen, for God so loved the world is preacher said it a minute ago. I'm telling the world, not just one isolated group of people, but the world. And here they were. They did not want it. They rejected it. Now, let me show you this real quickly, and I'll be done. I want you to notice the plan that's proclaimed in Nazareth, verse number 19, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. That's the day that we're living in. You see, that gospel message is good for today just as it was 2,000 years ago. It's to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. But then I noticed it was a day of duty as well. Let's, let me quote this verse. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 4. Listen to what Paul said. But as we were allowed, as we were allowed of God to be put in trust with the gospel, even so we speak. Now he said it another way over in 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. And all things are of God who hath reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ and hath given to us the ministry of reconciliation. 
To wit that God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, and had committed unto us the word of reconciliation. Now then, because of this, now then we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God did beseech you by us. We pray in Christ, be ye reconciled to God. Now listen to that again and grasp what he's saying. He said in 1 Thessalonians 2.4, As we were allowed of God to be put in trust with the gospel. You see, the very ministry that Jesus did on this earth, the message he preached to provide hope and help and healing and, and all that he did going around helping those whose lives are hurting and in shambles and, and lives are a mess. Do you know what he said? Now it's your turn. Now I've entrusted it to you. Well, if I could just take one of these gospel tracks and just illustrate it like it's, it is the gospel. I'm going to give it to you. It's your turn. I'm entrusting this to you. Now what are you going to do with it? You see, we are ambassadors for Christ. We are those ambassadors now. And the job that we have now is to go out in this hurting world. Because we got a message of hope. We have a message of healing. We have a message that can help. What are we doing with it? You see, because there's coming a day, there's coming a day when we can't. Let me show you this illustration and I'm done. Look over, if you would, in Luke chapter 5. Luke chapter 5 and verse 18. And behold, men brought in a a bed a man which was taken with palsy, and they sought means to bring him in and to lay him before him. And when they could not find by what way they bring him in because of the multitude, they went upon the housetop and let him down through the tiling which was on the, with his couch into the midst before Jesus. Now, get the picture here. I love doing construction work. and You know, those roofs that you would see over in, in first century times, you would generally take a beam running it across. And these beams were separated about three to four foot apart. On top of those beams, you're going to take reeds and run reeds across the top of it. On top of those reeds, you're going to take about one to two inches of mud and straw and and lime. That lime is like, as I mentioned the other day, it's like concrete. It seals the roof. And on top of those two inches of that, you're going to take, and you're going to take a stone roller. It looks like a yard roller. They're about this long, about 18 inches long, about that big around. And you're going to roll your roof, packing your roof down. On top of that, you're going to take about three to four inches of dry dirt. And you're going to pack it down with that dry dirt. On top of that, you're going to put about another inch or so of that mud with as much lime as you can, again, to seal that roof, packing it down. Now, here they are. They come into, they're in the Kifarnachum in Capernaum, and they, they could not get inside the house because of the multitude. And so they got to look around. They said, man. They climbed up on the roof, and the Bible says that they removed the tiling. Do you know what they did? They dug through all three layers busted through those reeds. We were leading a tour group in Nazareth one time and we were taking them. I was in the olive press area and, and our, my group was walking out. It's a replica of a first century olive press and the group before us, somebody slipped out of the, their group and climbed up on the roof. And as we were walking out, the roof started caving in, just dirt falling in and everybody started to run. I could see we were safe and so I said, whoa, stop, stop. And they stopped, looked. I said, remember that story in the Bible? I thought, what a good time to give an illustration when the roof was caving in. You know, they didn't think it was as funny as I did. But, I mean, it was, what an illustration. I never thought about it. Could you imagine being inside that house 
and all that dirt's falling down. What in the world? And all of a sudden, here comes this man being lowered down. And the Bible says in the next verse, and when Jesus saw their faith. You see, that man had a concern. But I want to tell you, he was committed in getting that, getting that man to the roof. If we're ever going to be anything for the Lord, we've got to have a concern. But we've got to be committed.